1: Welcome back to another episode of Get More Success. I'm your host, Warwick Mary. Now today we have a super special guest. She is someone who has two PhDs. She has run military bases like Pearl Harbor and the Darwin military base for the Americans. She has multiple best-selling books, and she runs. She's one of the senior professors, lecturers at the Air Force Academy in Colorado, one of the largest ones in the USA. And she's also a very successful speaker, and I'm pleased also to call her my friend. Please welcome Dr. Mary Kelly, Commander Retired. Welcome I'm to the so show. so excited
0: to be with you
1: today. Thank, Thank you. you. So what I'm going to start off with is the same question I always ask is, so Mary, you've done so much. How do you define success?
0: I think success is when you get to wake up every morning excited about what you get to do and who you get to do it with. And I know that's ending a sentence in a preposition, which is wrong. <laughs> but I think that success is that you wake up every day feeling like you are excited to do the work you choose to do, whether it's paid work or not, whether it's volunteer work, whether you're retired. I think that's what success is. Success is choice. You get to choose what you get to do and when you how you spend your time.
1: Fantastic. Well, you've made some very interesting choices, um, serving in the military for a prolonged period and now still a, a associated with it by instructing there. So what what led you to make some of the choices that you have made?
0: So I'm fond of saying that I made a lot of my life decisions based on John Denver songs. You know, he's saying... <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, he he's saying Calypso, so I thought that sounded romantic and exciting, so I joined the Navy, and it turns out that was a pretty good place for me to be. I was raised Irish Catholic, so uh, being in the American military wasn't that much of a change, you know, from a strict Irish Catholic family. Right. And, and then the military allowed me a lot more autonomy than a lot of people think. People frequently think, oh, you're a soldier, you're a sailor, you just do what you're told, you don't think... We get a lot of autonomy, and we get a lot of leadership very, very early on. So I was twenty one years old, and I was in charge of a division, and then when I was twenty three i I'd already had my first military promotion, I'd already served overseas, and now I was back doing um, divisional work and being part of a pretty senior team, being able to make decisions and recommendations. So the military gave me a lot of opportunity, and like a lot of life you get opportunities, it's up to you to figure out what you're going to do with them. And so I'm fond of saying, you know, life decisions, uh, you just have to look for the opportunities and grab them.
1: Right. So when you say you were in charge of a division, how many people are in a division? Like what sort of number of people were you responsible for?
0: So my very first division, I was responsible on a watch team for 14 people.
1: Okay. And, and so, ultimately, so you you ended up as a commander in the military. What's for those of us who are non-military? What's that? What's a, uh, what's that equivalent to?
0: So, a commander is two steps down from the rank of admiral or general. So, it's not bad; it, yeah. it's respectable.
1: <laughs> yeah, some would say, in fact, it's pretty awesome if it's two right. steps down from from an admiral. Um, that's fantastic. And so, what were some of the the things that you did as a commander, like? you were running Pearl Harbor, is that correct? I was
0: part of the team that ran Pearl Harbor. We There's an Admiral who's in charge of Pearl Harbor. And right now it's one of my classmates actually who's in charge of Pearl Harbor. But I was uh, the what's called the N1, which is um, administrative, quality of life, all the, all the components that go into running the base. Right. And so I was fortunate that, so I had teams of people. Um, it's the most junior position on a senior staff. And then I was a chief of police, as you know, for a couple of years, which is, you know, I, I know not everybody likes this, but, you know, I come from Texas. So anytime a job is going to give you all the guns and handcuffs you want, you know, that's, a, that's a good job right there.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. So Mary's a guns and handcuffs kind of girl. That's important to know. Uh, sort of like a very own Jack Reacher for those of us who are fans of the Jack Reacher. Uh, so, okay. So you, you've served, how long were you in the military? A total of 25 years. Okay. And you were saying that in the military, when you leave, you still hold that rank. So you're even though you're not serving, you're still a commander and treated as such like on the Air Force Base when you're, when you're now are, you, are you lecturing or are you a professor? What's your title on the Air Force Base?
0: I'm actually a professor. I am a contracted professor. I'm a civilian now because right. I'm retired, but as an officer, when you, or even as, a, as an enlisted person, if you retire, you retain that rank your whole life. And for us, it's a retainer. So our government, I am recallable at any time. So that means I'm supposed to adhere to certain standards and all that, uh, which I probably don't do very well. Um, <laughs> that makes me recallable at any time. I'm recallable until I'm 65, actually.
1: Well, many um, but, years to go.
0: Yeah, <laughs> that was the right thing to say. <laughs>
1: um,
0: but uh, yes, I'm a, I'm a contract professor at the Air Force Academy. And I, up there, I teach economics and leadership.
1: Right. Well, so that leads into, so you have two PhDs, not just one. Uh, One's in economics and what's the other in?
0: Political science and nobody cares.
1: Okay. Is that why you did the economics one? Because political science, like no one cared. So you're like, oh, I need to do something that's worthwhile.
0: I actually got the economics one first. And then I was doing research in Southeast Asia on economic issues that it was leading to resource allocations and I was making policy recommendations. So it kind of led into the other work.
1: And and your, there was a list of the top 100 uh, economists in the USA and you're number 12, 13?
0: 13. Okay. I dropped to 13, yes.
1: Oh, but you're still the top 15. That's got to be something good.
0: It's it's pretty good, and it's uh, it's terms of economic influence.
1: Yeah. Um,
0: so when I feel like my economic influence is lagging, and a lot of it is measured by the algorithms of social media, you know, yep. I just post pictures of the puppies, and it <laughs> takes those numbers right back up.
1: Fantastic. So, as as an economist, what sort of things? Um, would you recommend for individuals to be successful? And I know you've written some books and you've done some presentations about this and you've even got an emergency kit or a breaking case of emergency or something. So t- t- tell me a little bit about that because a lot of people go, ah, oh, the finances are, oh, insurance are, oh, economics, it's too hard. So as someone who is the, t- the, the number 13 most influential economist in the USA, what are some of the basics that as individuals we have to not only be aware of, but take action with?
0: So let me just give you three things that I tell people when we're dealing with their own personal financial issues. First is take responsibility now for your own retirement. However old you are, make sure whatever you're doing, you are preparing for your retirement. In the United States right now, I have these statistics. If you if you live to be 25, if you're entering the job market at 25 right now, you have a 29% it, 29% will not make it to 65. Um, that's just people die, things yep. happen. But if, but if you're one of those 71% who do make it to 65, you're likely to live to 85. So if you live that long, you have to make sure you've prepared yourself for that period of time. And so when I talk about retirement, let me just make it really simple from, from say zero to 21, you're essentially a parasite. You know, you're really not contributing much, let's just yep. say. And then from 21, to let's say 65, those are your working years, 21 to 65. And then you've got say from 65 to 85 or 100 because we're living longer. So from 21 to 65, you've only got those 44 years to plan on taking care of your own Parasites, the one you've created, your children, and then you've got to plan for the next 40 years of your own life, 35, 40 years, depending upon how the longevity is in your family. But people don't realize I've got to plan for not just my retirement in those 44 years, but perhaps my spouse, and at the same time, take care of my kids. So you're not just working for you, you're working for four other people. And at the same time, you've also got to be planning for paying your taxes and making sure that you're building a life. And that's tough.
1: Yeah. And that's, and, and even the same can be said in Australia with those, those kind of statistics about those who live and how old we live. And in Australia, yeah. we have a government pension that a lot of people go, well, at the very least I'll get the pension when I turn 65, but the pension in Australia, a, we won't have enough people to fund it. And B it's about the same amount of money as the poverty line. So it's not what you'd call an enjoyable lifestyle. So, And there is a lot of people who do live for the moment. So I think that's a great tip to to look at, okay, what can I do in this 40 years of working to plan for the then additional 40 years of possible living? And as we know, as you get older, your medical costs are going to increase and your insurance costs for that. So there is additional expenses to take care of.
0: And many people also say, well, in retirement, I'll have fewer expenses, except that's not really true. Because think about when you have more free time, you spend more money, not less. Mm. And people don't think about that either. So the retirement piece, I think is key and changing how we look at retirement. And that is, it's not something that I can deal with when I'm older. It's something I have to think about now. That That's the easy part. Um, the second thing is to watch your spending, I can tell what's important to you by looking at what you what you spend money on. Mm -hmm. So a lot of people just are not mindful of what they spend because they don't think about it. But if you look at every single penny you spend for a month, and all of a sudden, all of a sudden you realize, wow, there's money I'm spending that I'm not paying attention to. And even better, if you do this exercise with your spouse or your partner or a close friend, where you have to be accountable for every penny, and all of a sudden you go, oh, I don't really want to tell them I spent that money. Maybe, maybe it's not the right expenditure. You know, that's, that's my other point.
1: Because there is a lot of consumption and uh, sort of the consumption for consumption's sake and our government support it because it's like, oh, it stimulates the economy. And, but that's not really a good enough excuse to spend your money if you don't necessarily need to. No.
0: And the third is don't have debt. And I know that sounds very simple, but there's good debt and there's bad debt. Good debt is taking out a mortgage so you can have a house. That's good debt. Good debt is funding your education that's going to give you a job. Bad debt is getting a degree that is unemployable. That's not great debt. So some people say, oh, it's my passion. Well, that's fantastic. But if you can't make a living from it, then then it becomes a vanity degree. And people are going to hate this. It's a vanity degree that makes you feel better about yourself, but it's not going to help you economically. So I'm a big fan that people get to do what they love to do, but you have to look at good debt versus bad debt and good expenditures versus not so good expenditures.
1: Right. And so you said have no debt. Are you actually saying have no bad debt or are you no saying if, if possible, have no debt, but if you are having debt, make sure it's, it's a, a good, good debt, debt versus, but yeah, yeah, okay.
0: Good debt. Like your house is good debt, a car. I'm okay with a car as debt. Because you can either save up to buy that or you can just pay it. And um, most car loans are, you know, three, four, five years. You're probably going to have the car that long. I don't love it because then people sometimes get sucked into buying a car that is far above what they need. So a good rule is don't spend more than six months of your annual income on a vehicle. Right. And that's just a good rule. And buy the car you need, not the car you want. But if, but if you need a car and you don't have a car, then that's good debt as long as it's the right car. But after that, then it's just wants. And as long as you're able to eat, then, then that's it. And I tell people just stop spending money. Just stop. Don't go shopping. Don't go to the mall. Don't go online. Stop. Simply stop spending money if you don't have any.
1: Yeah. And it is funny how people will spend money they don't have. It's, and um, I did some consulting work with the bank once and there were people who would get extensions on their credit card and think that they were just given the $5,000 credit limit increase without realizing they're paying 23% interest on every cent that they spend and then don't pay off.
0: And people don't realize sometimes that how much debt accumulates. For example, they'll have two or three credit cards, but they don't add it up. And that's another thing people can do is at the end of every month, you take all your credit cards and all your debt. And you have you have that number, and you put it on your calendar. This is how much I have left on my mortgage. This is how much I have left on my car. This is how much I've got on all my credit cards. And, and when you see that, and your student loan, and you see all those numbers, and all of a sudden you go, wow that's debt. And and seeing those numbers every month go down is very motivating.
1: Yeah, yeah, very much so. Okay, well, there, there's some great little tips for people who are sort of getting ahead. So, you said previously that success is sort of being able to do what you want to do. What are some of the lessons that you've learned? Like, what are some of the things that you've discovered with your, your career that you thought, I wish I'd known that sooner?
0: Ooh, that's such a good question. So, I wish... I wish... I wish I had started writing sooner. I had I had scribbled a lot, but I had not formulated really cogent thoughts into anything. And I wish I had started writing sooner. I wish I'd kept a better journal. I wish I had, I wish I had done sooner the journaling that I tell people to do now. And journaling is kind of a hip phrase, but um, I used to use calendars that kind of would so I'd kind of say what I did that day or something like that. I really wish I'd started when I was 20, when I was off having great adventures and just written five minutes every day. Mm-hmm. I wish I'd done that.
1: Because you've published multiple books and a lot of articles as well, haven't you?
0: I, I have. I've been very fortunate. I publish... I do publish a lot uh, in terms of articles, and thank you for that. I've been in um, the American magazines, Forbes, and Entrepreneur, and Success, and, and Wall Street Journal, and Men's Health. People like the Men's Health a lot.
1: Men's Health. Fant- what did you write for Men's Health? How that to get was- ripped abs in six weeks. Yeah. Yaw!
0: Um, that was the, that was the in case of emergency program, which is the high, you know, you could die. You, you probably will. Um, uh, if not, you're not being kicked to death by a kangaroo and, uh, that we were talking about earlier, uh, but you could die. So you've got to make sure that your paperwork is in order and, yeah. and this is how, and this is an easy way to do that. Okay. So I wrote, okay. a, I wrote a book on that. Um, I've r- written about 11 books as, as you were kind enough to mention, and, and it turns out that writing, is, writing is like working out. The more you work out, the more you feel like working out. When, you, when you're kind of out of shape, you don't really feel like working out. And that's kind of what writing is like. And I've, I know because I've, I've done both of those things. <laughs> <you know? laughs> and the more you write, the easier it is to write more.
1: Okay, great. So you wish you'd, you'd started writing earlier. What else? What other lessons did you learn earlier that you wish you'd known? Sooner? That I
0: wish I'd known wow that i as a leader have to have to try harder than everybody else i have to work harder i have to not just set the example but i even if it's i tell a lot of smart people i say you know what if you're smart and you can do everything better than everybody else but you don't make make an effort to be even better then i don't want you on my team i want the effort i want people who are going to give 100% all the time who who really give of themselves and give their energy and focus because it's there's that I think it's a tipping point not in the Malcolm Gladwell way but I think it's a tipping point for your own success is that if you're not constantly getting better then the people around you are not benefiting so I I think as a leader we have to continue to just push ourselves even though we're doing we may be doing great but it's not enough
1: Yeah. yeah yeah it's that you can't rest on your laurels and if you're not leading by example then why would they follow
0: and you have to try hard. And yeah. you have to try hard every day, even when you don't feel like it. Okay. You know, and I think I think that's a big part of leadership too.
1: Cool. All right. So with with so much on the go, you know, with, you know, you're speaking and authoring and, and professoring, what's next for Mary Kelly?
0: So I am excited. I've got a new project coming out on the future of work. And this is about... Generation Z and what their workplace is going to look like when we can't even fathom what the workplace is going to look like in five or ten years. Mm-hmm. So right now, you know, this kind of dialogue and correspondence would be impossible five, ten years ago because it was shaky, the sound was terrible, we couldn't we couldn't see each other, it's really tough. And so now we don't need to go to an office, as you know. We don't need to check into a big corporation. So all of a sudden, that changes the real estate. We don't need these huge offices. We don't need these huge buildings. What is this going to change? How our homes are being built in terms of what we need in our home? Is this going to change? Are more people going to want to work at home? There's a, still a lot of people who say, you know what? I I need people. I need to be around other people with great ideas. I need a routine by myself at home. I wind up in my pajamas all day long, just wandering around. Uh, you know, some people are not good by themselves, mm. and then we have to look at automation as well. You know, we're big on the AI and big data, and how is that gonna change how we structure work? Are we gonna have cities that have driverless cars so that we can get rid of parking lots? I'm doing a lot of research right now on the future of work and what kind of leadership skills and other critical skills are going to be necessary to be part of the leadership of the future.
1: Cause that's the thing, isn't it? With um, people who no longer work in the office, they can work at home. There's a completely different mindset for managers, managers to be able to look after that. There's an increased level of trust because there's a lot of managers I know who don't like it because they're like, they'll just be on Facebook all day. They won't actually be working. Um, and so it's how you measure success of your team is going to have to shift.
0: Oh, absolutely. And, and many people struggle with that trust issue, like you said, anyway, and they, and then other people say, well, if they're not here, I don't have to think about them. Right. So, so there's a certain amount of that. So our new leaders are going to have to, they will have to trust more, but they're also going to have to make sure those people they bring on board are trained mm-hmm. and capable of working at home. And then what does that look like? You know, what makes a good intrinsically motivated outcomes driven employee versus somebody who's just going to lounge around and you know pet the cat all day mm.
1: and, and also someone who feels part of the team and willing to contribute even though that physically they may never be part of the team maybe flown in for a training session but and then it's like well the people my team members there's no limit to the geography
0: right right so there's and that's exactly it um the boundaries of geography are gone mm-hmm. and then all of a sudden you say well then my team could be somebody from Romania and somebody from Italy and somebody from Brazil and somebody from Australia. And then now we've got different language, different culture, different time zones, different things like that. And how does that then play out? How do you coalesce different groups of people who you, you may be the manager and you don't even speak their language. Mm. How do you, how do you convey what, you know, what you need them to do? And so there's a couple of ways to do that, um, but it's going to take some massive changes in terms of how we view problem solving and critical skills and leadership.
1: Mm. Fascinating. I look forward to uh, finding out more from all of your research.
0: Well, it's a lot, it's a lot of fun and it's um, a lot of guests. Um, So I've visited Thomas Fry of the Da Vinci Institute here in Colorado. He's a futurist Mm -hmm. and he does all kinds of really interesting things. Um, I'm working on this one, of course, with Peter Stark again, because he's brilliant out of San Diego.
1: Mm -hmm. And
0: I'm looking at, um, I'm looking at all kinds of different pieces. um, Again, from, I'm trying to balance the economics and the leadership, you know, from an economic perspective, is this going to be better for workers? Is this this something they can then take with them? So let's say you're a contract worker, you can work for three different companies and maybe piecemeal benefits that you need, or Mm -hmm. you can take those benefits with you, or you can be more of a freelancer. We're guesstimating in the United States that in about 12 years, 40% of all of our employees will be contract workers. Yeah. So piecemeal freelancers, And all of a sudden, what does that do to loyalty? What does that do to, you know, that teamwork aspect? And does it increase productivity? And economically, does this make sense? And then there are certain jobs that we will never be able to outsource. But people said that, you know, um, Thomas Fry mentioned this to me a couple weeks ago. He said but people thought that in the 1920s about elevator operators, you know, people say, well, there's no possible way that that job would go away. And people say, people argue that with driverless cars. They say, well, I would never get into a car that I wasn't driving. Well, wait a second. You get into a metal box going up 40 floors and there's nobody driving that. So is there a difference? Thomas Fry was the one who gave me that
1: example. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's correct. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, and that's the thing with what you're looking at is half the future we don't know, and um, you know we need to start asking these questions so we can help determine and create that, and make sure that we have the people skills to get ready for it.
0: That's exactly it. And you know, being an educator, sort of, and training military teams, you know, what does this look like for them? Mm. You know, what does what are the teams they're supposed to be leading? How are they going to be different from what they're leading now in Mm. 10 years? And we have to look at what we're doing and say, are we doing a good enough job to give them what they need in order to be successful?
1: Fantastic. I could chat to you for ages, but unfortunately, we are out of time. Mary, if people want to get in touch with you, find out more about you um, and tap into some of the, the different things that you're talking about, like this future of work and your leadership work, how's the best way for them to get in touch with you?
0: Well, you know, I love Australia and everyone from Australia. So, um, of course, if anybody would like to get in touch with me, I'm at Mary at ProductiveLeaders.com. That's ProductiveLeaders.com. And you know, on my website under free stuff, there's all kinds of free stuff for your business people, your leaders, um, people who are preparing for emergencies. You know, you just had the fires in Queensland. Um, there's all kinds of free stuff and your readers, or your listeners are more than welcome to go and just help themselves. There's no sign in, just go take everything they want.
1: And the free stuff is awesome. So go and check that out. Mary Kelly, thank you so much for your time today.
0: Thank you so much. I just love seeing you guys.
1: Thank you. You've been listening to another episode of the Get More Success Show. I look forward to your company next time. Thanks for listening to the Get More Success Show with Warwick Merry. Continue the conversation with other successful people over at getmoresuccess.com. That's where you'll find all the show notes as well as a link to our Facebook group that we'd love for you to join. Getmoresuccess.com is also where you'll find all the information you need to connect with me, your host, Warwick Merry. Thanks for listening, and we hope you can get more success.